Well, this week, uh, this year, we're beginning a new series for a new year. We are going to work our way through Psalm 119. It consists of 176 verses, which actually makes it not only the longest psalm, but also the longest chapter in the Bible. It's truly what you could describe as a feast on the attributes of the Word of God and its application to our lives as Christians. It's a psalm that has wisdom. It's a psalm that also has within it thanksgiving, praise, petition, and lament as well. The psalm takes the Word of God and examines it from multiple angles. One of the ways that you can see that taking place is the multiple words that are used to speak of the word of God. For example, the word law is used 25 times. The word word is used 24 times. Testimonies is used 23 times. Commands or commandments is used 23 times. His judgments, that's used 22 times. His decrees are used is used 21 times. Precepts is used 21 times. And then the word for word or promise is used 19 times. Such a variety of giving us so many different angles to consider the scriptures. Psalm 119 has 22 stanzas to it. Each stanza consists of eight verses, and they correspond to the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Many of your Bibles actually probably use the letter of the Hebrew alphabet as a title for each eight-verse section. For example, the first stanza that we're looking at this morning is under the Hebrew letter Aleph. And so that means each individual verse in that section begins with that letter. Second stanza is under the letter Bet. Each individual verse in that section begins with that Hebrew letter and so on all the way through Psalm 119. One of the questions to consider is who wrote this psalm? Uh, The author is not named, not listed. David, of course, wrote the majority of the psalms, and so it's often assumed that he must have written this one as well. Some have said that maybe it's a collection of things that he wrote at various times and in various situations and then put them together in these 22 stanzas, which is possible. Some have thought that maybe it was written during the Maccabean era, I think that timing is probably not true, but I think the reason they think that is something to consider. The reason behind that is that the author of Psalm 119 speaks in such a way to make it clear that he's living in a time where there's much hostility to his faith. The one suggestion I find most intriguing is that it may have been written by Daniel. Daniel had been taken from Israel during the Babylonian siege, was forced to live in Babylon as an exile. This would put him in a foreign land that was opposed to his faith. He was under constant pressure to conform to the Babylonian beliefs and customs. He he was forced to give much attention to learning Babylonian uh, wisdom writings. There are actually many parallels in Psalm 119 that we can connect to the things that we read of Daniel in the book of Daniel. And we'll take some note of some of those as we work our way through the psalm. Now, there's no way to know for sure 
who actually wrote the, the book or if, if, if it was, in fact, Daniel. But I think Brian Borgman has a good point when he says this, this is on your outline. He says, I'm convinced that the psalm reflects the challenge of walking with God as an exile in a hostile world. So that makes Psalm 119 very timely for us. We are living in a time when Christians basically are seen as the bad guys. We are living in a culture where even professed Christians sometimes mock and reject the things that the Word of God teaches. Well, this psalm gives us thorough instruction on how to live in times like these. So let's read Psalm 119, verse 1 through 8. How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. They also do no unrighteousness. They walk in his ways. You have ordained your precepts that we should keep them diligently. Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. Then I shall not be ashamed when I look upon all your commandments. I shall give thanks to you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. I shall keep your statutes. Do not forsake me utterly. I think we can see these verses in three sections. Uh, Verses 1, 2, and 3 focus on the blessing that comes from living your life in obedience to God's law. Section number 2 is verse 4. And there we see that we should obey because they are God's commandments, and therefore his authority is emphasized in that. Then verses 4 through 8, we are reminded that we need God's help if we're going to obey God's word. So, first main point is this. True happiness, true happiness in life comes from walking in the law of the Lord. Verses 1 and 2 both begin by speaking of the blessing that comes from walking in God's laws and observing his testimonies. In some ways, it seems that this first stanza is setting the theme really for the rest of the psalm. Really in the same way that Psalm 1 really sets the pace for all the whole book of Psalms. Psalm 1, for example, talks about the blessing that comes from turning away from the counsel of the wicked and instead delighting in the law of the Lord. And that's the context for the rest of the book of Psalms. This stanza does the same thing specifically for Psalm 119. It emphasizes the great happiness in life that comes from walking in God's law while turning away from unrighteous ways. And in various ways, we're going to see that talked about all through this psalm. The word for blessing can be translated as happy. Some of your versions may actually use that word. Happiness is what everybody wants. I mean, the way we approach everything, the way we approach music, the way we approach food, the way we approach work or relationships, how we spend our free time, entertainment, whatever it is, everything is weighted heavily toward what makes us most happy. Well, the Bible has a lot to say about that. Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, begins with a series of truths on how to be blessed, how to be happy, the Beatitudes. And clearly, Psalm 119 has some important things to say about that subject as well. 
But of course, what we're going to see is that the Bible's instructions on how to be happy are not the same as what the world says will make you most happy. In fact, they go directly against the majority of those things. Well, the first thing we see about how to be truly happy is this. Blessing is promised to those who govern themselves, those who govern themselves by God's law. Verse 1, how blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. When we think about God's blessing, we can think about comfort that he would give, encouragement, peace, fruitfulness, real confidence in the Lord. Those are some examples maybe of what it would mean to be blessed. And this is a kind of blessing that can come no matter what our circumstances are. This is a reminder to us, really, that the way to have God's blessing in our life is to live in ways that are consistent with what his law says. The word for law in verse 1 is the word Torah. It speaks of God's revelation. It speaks of his precepts. The word for blameless can mean undefiled, complete, or having integrity. So this is not a requirement that one is going to live perfectly without sin. Instead, it's speaking of genuine sincerity. We are truly seeking to walk in the law of the Lord. It's not just when other people are watching, but it's also when we're by ourselves and nobody's watching. As I've been working through these verses, the question I have to deal with is the same one that you really have to deal with too. Do I do that? Do I do that? Do I consistently walk in the law of the Lord? Do I live my life genuinely and sincerely seeking to honor God's law in all that I do? It's an important question to consider. It leads us to the second thing that's necessary to be truly happy. Blessing is promised to those who are not content with outward obedience, but seek him with all their heart. Seeking with all their heart. Verse 2, how blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. We have a repeated blessing here, a focus here, their meaning on, on God's blessing. Uh, and in this verse, the word of God is spoken of as his testimonies. Thomas Manton says that God's testimonies speak of the whole declaration of God's will. In doctrines, commands, examples, threatenings, and promises. <laughs> the word is also especially viewed in connection with terms of God's covenant. So he is our God, we are his people, so we have an obligation before him to observe his testimonies. Now in this verse, there is a special focus on the heart. It's not just enough to obey God with our outward actions. We are to seek him, it says, with all of our heart. So this is a call to govern ourselves by God's law because we truly want to please him. There's a place, there really is, there's a place for doing the right thing as a regular discipline or as a, a, a good habit, a right habit. There's a place for that. But we must not be content just with good habits and strong discipline. We want to make sure we do the right thing for the right reason, for the right purpose. This leads to another hard question. Do I really seek the Lord with all my heart? 
That bothers me because so much of my heart seems to go different directions at different times. But that's where true happiness is, is to seek him. That's where true blessing is when we seek him with all our heart. The third thing that's connected with true happiness is this. Blessing is promised to those who do not intentionally go after things that are wrong. Verse 3 says, they also do no unrighteousness. They walk in his ways. So the first two verses really speak positively of the need to walk in the law of the Lord, observe his testimonies, seek him with all your heart. This verse speaks more on what not to do. We are not to go after things that we know are unrighteous, things that we know are sinful according to what God's law says. When we do those things that are sinful, we are doing it because we think they will make us happy. That sin will fulfill us in some way, will we'll be something that we think is important to us. But there's no blessing in purposely doing something that we know is sinful. We all struggle with sin. There's no exceptions to that. Temptations that we deal with are probably going to vary. There's going to be some differences in the kind of temptations that different ones deal with. But we all struggle with temptation. We all have to deal with that, and it can't be ignored here. But the one thing I want to point out here is there really needs to be a struggle. The psalmist especially talking about here is not is purposefully going after sin. He's talking about things that we intentionally give a seat at the table. Don't try to keep it out. It's invited in. It's welcomed. We don't even fight it. So the sins that remain in our lives, the temptations that continue to be there, which we all have, also need to be object the object of our struggle where we are seeking to put them to death they're still hanging on but we're seeking to put them to death it's not the case that we have sins that we're protecting to make sure we can keep them the person of verse three is a person who really does want to walk in the ways of the lord his heart has been changed New Testament, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, talks about being new creatures in Christ. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The hard question in this verse is pretty obvious. Are there sins that I purposefully allow to stay in my life? And are there things that I do to make sure I can continue to enjoy that sin? I mentioned earlier that there are clear parallels with Daniel and uh, some of the verses uh, in Psalm 119. There's some here. I'm going to read from Daniel chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. To me, this is really something of a remarkable parallel. Even if Daniel didn't write it, he made application here. As you know, Daniel was in Babylon. Daniel 1.8. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. 
Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. So Daniel resolved before the Lord that he would not defile himself. He's in a place that's hostile to his faith. But even though that's where he is, he's made the resolve that he would not defile himself. Now, here he, drew, he draws the line at eating the foods that are uh, given to he and his, and his friends. Daniel may have drawn this line because eating was used something as something of a sacrament sometimes related to communion with false gods. That could be part of the context here. It could be that he and his friends were really guarding themselves from being ensnared in idolatrous uh, ways, and this was kind of one of the first steps they felt like was moving that direction. So they didn't do it, but whatever the actual reason was, Daniel was clear that if I participate in this, I will defile myself before the Lord. So I will not. So in other words, looking back at Psalm 119, his focus was on walking in the law of the Lord in observing his testimonies and seeking him with his whole heart. He wanted to be sure that he did not participate in what he considered to be an unrighteous action. And what happened? He was blessed. The Lord granted him favor in the sight of the Babylonian officials. You can almost see him writing this in context with what just happened, with what happened there in Daniel 1. So we may look at the terrible things that are going on in our culture and wonder, what do we do? Well, this is where we start. This is where we start. We recognize that true blessing comes from walking in the law of the Lord. Second main point is this. The most fundamental reason for diligently obeying God's word is that they are the commands of the one true God. Verse 4, you have ordained your precepts that we should keep them diligently. So in this verse, the psalmist adds a very important context to the commitment that he's made to live his life according to God's law. God's precepts, when it says here, the word precepts here, that's in a sense God's orders or God's charge. And the fact that he has ordained them speak of his inherent authority as the one true God. So, so it's, it's the sovereign authority of God that is behind every precept, every aspect of God's word. So the psalmist is not looking at the scriptures as some sort of moral code that will be helpful to him in life. They are the commands of God. So as we're thinking about the, about, the needs, about the need to walk according to God's law, we need to remind ourselves that that is what it really and truly is. It's God's law. He did not reveal these things to us as helpful hints. They are given as commands. And because that's true, we're called to keep them diligently to be diligent is to give great effort, uh, is to do something well, is to use our time 
well and, and as, as we're seeking to follow the Lord is to use opportunities that he gives us to honor him. It's to use what talents and skills and opportunities we have to grow in our faith and so forth. And since the precepts of God are truly God's word, they are worth the effort that we put forward to know them, understand them, and apply them. So it makes sense. If there, or if, if there are precepts that God has ordained, then we keep them diligently. It just kind of goes hand in hand. Well, since the precepts of God are truly his word, let me, uh, here's, how, here's how really Thomas Manton basically sums up this verse. He says, To gain the heart of a full obedience, it is good to consider the authority of God in his word. So when we read our Bible, or hear it read, it's important to remember that what's behind these words is the full authority of God. And that's an important motivation if we're going to have a heart that's full of obedience. When our third main point, we see something that puts really everything here in a proper light for us. Number three, every believer must humble themselves before the Lord and ask, ask for his enabling to do what he requires. So if we're going to take seriously what's been presented to us in the first four verses, then we all recognize we need help. None of us is adequate in ourselves to obey the Lord to the extent that we are called to do it. And the psalmist recognized that. Look at verses 5 through 9. Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. Then I shall not be ashamed when I look upon all your commandments. I shall give thanks to you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. I shall keep your statutes. Do not forsake me utterly. Several things that we can glean from these verses that will be a help to us, I think. And first is this. We need to recognize that weakness, weakness is not an excuse for disobedience. Weakness is not an excuse. The psalmist opened by speaking of God's blessing for those whose way is blameless as he walks in the law of the Lord. He continued by talking about the need to seek him with all of our heart, not just going through the motions outwardly. He talks about intentionally making sure we are not intentionally going after things that we know are wrong. And then reminds us that the word of God are the actual precepts of God and his authority is behind every one of them. And then he admits something that we can all relate to. He admits that he needs help. This is beyond me. It's beyond you. And so he prays. He says, Lord Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. This is a prayer for help. He knew very well how important that was. God had placed the desire in his heart to follow the Lord in just the way that he has laid out in these opening verses. But he knows his heart too well. He knows how inadequate he is. He knows how inconsistent he's been in the past. He knows how hard it will be when the culture around him is going in the opposite direction. But he knows this is the way to true happiness. 
Charles Bridges says this. He said, we might as soon create a world as create in our hearts one pulse of spiritual life. And yet our inability does not cancel our obligation. There is no one who is in their right mind who thinks that they are capable of creating a world. You might be able to make a model. There's nobody who thinks they can create a world. Like I said, somebody who's in their right mind, that's absurd. But many do think they can conjure up spiritual life within them. Think highly enough of ourselves that we think we can conjure that up. We can cause that to come into being. It isn't true. We can't do that. We can no more create spiritual life in our hearts than we could create a world. But just because we can't do it doesn't mean we're not responsible before God to walk in the law of the Lord with all our heart. We can't do it, but we're obligated to do it. So instead, our inability, our weakness, is meant to drive us to the Lord for help. In his prayer, the psalmist here asked God to establish his ways so that he would keep God's statutes. So he's asking for regularity in his life. He's asking that keeping the statutes of God would be the way that he thinks would be the way that he acts really throughout his day. That that would be the norm. That that would be his established routine. Again, not just the outward routine, but the heart that goes with it. But he's asking that all that would be established. So everything in these verses is beyond us. Therefore, we must regularly go to the Lord in prayer for help. Help me to do this, Lord. From there, we see next that it is with God's help that one is given a heart to fully obey God's commandments while also realizing perfect righteousness is only available by faith in Christ. In verse 6, the psalmist says that when the Lord comes to his aid in this way, then he won't be ashamed when he looks on all of God's commandments. How many of them? All of them. (laughs) The more you look at this, the more overwhelmed you get, honestly. (laughs) All of his commandments. We're not encouraged to obey most of the commandments or to do better than most people that we know. We're called to obey all of them. To take all of God's commandments seriously, because that's what they are, God's commandments. So, of course, you take them seriously. Well, that's the kind of heart that the psalmist is praying for. And as God answers his prayer for help, he says he will not be ashamed because he's truly pursuing all that God requires of him in his word. Now, I have to remember something here. Our obedience to God's word It's never going to be perfect. As a result, there are always going to be reasons to be ashamed or to be guilty. Every one of us sin every day. There are things that we do 
that we know we shouldn't do. There are thoughts in our minds that we know are wrong. And even when we do the right thing, we may be doing it for the wrong reason. We do certain things maybe because we know people are watching. We do certain things with an attitude of being superior to other people. We might do certain things without ever giving a thought to my purpose in doing this is to please God. So it takes it out of its right context. There are also things that we leave off doing that we should be doing. Usually at the top of the list, there's prayer. It is for me. It may be reading, studying, meditating on the scripture. It may be not reaching out to someone. It may be choosing not to give a witness for Christ when there's a clear opportunity to do that. But if the Lord is at work in our lives, he will convict us of those things. And when he does, we can then go to him for forgiveness and for the grace that we need to get back on track, walking according to his law. But there's another very important aspect of this. Ultimately, the only way we can look upon all of God's commandments and not be ashamed is if we know somebody else has already kept them on our behalf. That, of course, points us to the Messiah. He is the one who did all that he, all that he did, he did to fulfill all righteousness. And he did it on our behalf. Jesus always walked in the law of the Lord. Jesus always obeyed with all of his heart. Jesus never pursued anything that was unrighteous. Never, not even once. And all his ways were established to keep all of the statutes of God, all of them, every single day when he was on earth. And that righteousness that he earned is given to every person who puts their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. Now, of course, I'm speaking here from the perspective of the New Testament, at least in some degree. Because when Psalm 119 was written, of course, there was no New Testament. The Messiah had not yet come into the world. But the Old Testament believers still could receive this righteousness of the Messiah. They received it by faith in the promises that he was coming. All the way back to Genesis 15, 6, we see that Abraham believed the Lord and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. His faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. That was saving faith. And we're encouraged in the New Testament, using that exact same verse, we're encouraged in the New Testament that we should have the same faith that Abraham had to receive that salvation, that righteousness from the Lord. So that's just as real an application here in Psalm 19, even though Christ has never come, because the promise is that he would come. And when he would come, he would provide that righteousness for us. So we truly do not have to be ashamed in that sense, because we have a righteousness that we cannot improve on. It's perfect as we stand before God.
The psalmist then continues by making clear to us that there is always more to learn. There's always more to learn from God's revelation in his word. The natural response to growth and understanding is heartfelt thanksgiving to God. Verse 7 says, I shall give thanks to you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. So here the psalmist recognizes that as he walks in the law of the Lord, there is always still much more to learn. He speaks here of learning of God's righteous judgments. God's righteous judgment speaks of his, the whole revelation of his word. It's the rule that he uses to judge people in the present, but also what he will use to judge in final judgment. So here is a man who's written Psalm 119. He's written 176 verses that are overwhelmingly focused on various aspects of the Word of God. He knows a lot. He knows a lot. He had clearly studied and meditated on the Scriptures, and he admits in verse 7 he still has more to learn. If he's going to continue to walk in the law of the Lord, then he, he needs to keep after it. Therefore, he is actively working to continue to learn more about God's revelation in his word. He never gets to the place, and we never get to the place, where we have no further need to study the scriptures. Charles Bridges had this very convicting, these very convicting words to say about the continued need to focus on learning the scriptures. He says this. He says, conceit of knowledge is the greatest enemy to knowledge and the strongest proof of ignorance. <laughs> the biggest thing that hinders us from growing in our knowledge of the word of God is proudly thinking we already understand it. I was making an application of myself while Mike was teaching this morning, teaching the book of James. Temptation that came to me when Mike first started teaching had, re had related to this. Because those who are in Wednesday night group, we actually went through a pretty detailed study of James a few years ago. I've got notes all over my Bible on the book of James. Do I need to sit through another Bible study in the book of James? Yes. And there's been multiple things that Mike has brought out that are like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. You don't know it all. <laughs> there's always room to learn and to grow in your learning. First Corinthians 8 says, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. If anyone thinks that he has known anything, he is not known as he ought to know. So knowledge of the Lord and of his word, obviously, is extremely important. But Satan can use that knowledge of the word to make us feel proud. And that pride keeps us from being teachable. In fact, Charles Bridges says, it's the strongest proof of ignorance. If we already think we know it. So those who are proud of their knowledge are not aware of how ignorant they really are. So as we continue to grow in our knowledge of the Lord and of his word, 
we should be thankful. The psalmist says that he gives thanks to the Lord with uprightness of heart when he grows in his knowledge. Everything he hears and everything he reads and those insights that come to him, he says, thank you, Lord. Thank you for that. There's a delight in, in understanding and knowing things. And this especially as we learn the scriptures, we give thanks. And we are, it helps us be, continue to be teachable and to be humble. Verse 8 says, I shall keep your statutes. Do not forsake me utterly. So from this last verse, we see this. Believers are well aware of their weakness and know that apart from the ongoing presence of God, they have no hope of walking in his ways. So based on learning God's righteous judgments in verse 7, the psalmist now resolves that he will keep the statutes of the Lord. God has worked that desire in his heart, which is kind of evident really all through, the, uh, all through these verses. But even here, there's the recognition that his keeping of God's statutes will not be what it should be. He emphasizes here really again that he's weak and needs God's help. There's no way he can please the Lord without his help. And if the Lord forsakes him, then he will most definitely fail. So he's trusting God's faithfulness. That's part of what he has learned in his study of the word. He has learned that God is faithful. One psalm uh, that actually speaks of this that would fit very well with this in Psalm 89. Uh, there's, uh, the psalmist speaks there of the fact that those who follow his will sometimes don't follow his will. Sometimes they forsake his law. Sometimes they violate his statutes. Sometimes they fail to keep his commandments. And then right after he says that in the series of three or four verses there, in verse 13 he says, the Lord says, But I will not break off my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. So the psalmist in Psalm 119 is encouraged by God's faithfulness to him. He's in covenant with the Lord. Yes, he will sometimes fail in his desire to walk according to God's law. But the Lord really will not forsake him utterly, not in a final kind of way. There will be conviction of sin. There will be rebuke. There will be correction. There will be grace also to bring about repentance. So these truths from verses 1 through 8 really are the Christian's basic cry and basic commitment to the Lord. God has changed our heart, and we truly want to follow him. We want to make sure that his word is truly the priority, or a priority at least, in our life. And we know that he is the sovereign Lord, but he's also our Savior. So we pray, Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. That's a good prayer. We need that in all seasons of life, especially when the culture around us is hostile to our faith. We trust the Lord to be strong in our weakness. Lord, we do want to thank you again for your word. We thank you for the testimony of the psalmist as he gives us insight into his own life and to his own heart and to his own struggles and the things that are, that are things he's having to work through. And Lord, I want to thank you for the emphasis here on walking in your laws and keeping all of your commandments. I mean, just 
I thank you for the emphasis that is here. It's the kind of thing that we need to be reminded of. Lord, help us to hold up that standard as a high standard and not dilute it. At the same time, help us to recognize and to admit that we're weak and we need help. Help us to be humble, to be teachable, to be those who really know we can't do it apart from you. So, Lord, I ask that you would do that. I ask you would do that for each of us. I ask that our ways might be established so that we might keep your statutes. Help us to grow in those ways. If you're one who's never put your faith in Christ, if you're one who's never trusted him for salvation, then, well, that goes before all this going on here. You need a Savior. You need a relationship with the Lord. And this, and this is what God requires of us. He's provided your need in Christ. I would encourage you to put your faith in Christ. A prayer like this will be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I'm sinful. I realize that I do not measure up at all to what is said here. Matter of fact, I have to admit there's not even a desire in my heart for it. And I know that's not good. I know that's wrong. I know that's sinful because these are your precepts. I should want to diligently keep them, and I don't want that. Lord, change my heart. Change my heart. I know I'm a sinner, but I also know that you are a Savior. And I put my faith in Jesus Christ as my Savior, and I want to commit my life to him as the Lord of my life. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment, you can make a note on your tear-off for those who are.